This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today focuses on Matthew 22, 34-46, which turns back to a question from the Pharisees about the greatest commandment, and Jesus' question to them about whose son the Messiah is. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizano Podcast. And we are excited to be back with you guys as we close out uh, Matthew chapter 22. Um, as a quick reminder, last week we worked through the, the middle section of Matthew chapter 22, looking at verses 15 through 33. Uh, and as we explored that, we looked at Jesus' statement on on paying the imperial tax to Caesar, as well as his response to the Sadducees' question on uh, marriage at the resurrection. And, and as a result, we discussed this idea of life stewardship and, and what it looks like and what it means to root our identities in Christ rather than anything else. Um, this week, as we close out uh, chapter 22, uh, we'll be turning back to uh, another question from the Pharisees about the greatest commandment. And then we're going to see Jesus have the opportunity to ask a question of those around him uh, about whose son the Messiah is. Uh, I believe today we have Natasha reading. So Natasha, would you read Matthew chapter 22 uh, verses 34 through 46? Yes. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. All right. Thank you for reading that, Natasha. Um, as we jump into a, a conversation on this passage today, uh, one thing that I would just like to make a note of um, right from the start is, um, you know, the, the Sadducees had been silenced uh, and you know, weren't able to catch Jesus up in in their question as they were intending to. And the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians also weren't able to catch Jesus up in their questions like they were thinking they were going to be able to. And so now the the Pharisees come and are working to catch him up and they they throw their best at it, right? Like previously they sent their disciples. Now not only are they bringing in like the the heavy hitter Pharisees, but they're bringing in a, an expert in the law uh, to ask a question about the law. 
And the intention behind this is this expert in the law is just that. He is an expert. And so he is going to know it backwards and forwards and everything about it and all the minutia. And, and, and so in asking him this question, um, they are going to know very quickly if he doesn't answer this question exactly right, then we have essentially uh, invalidated his authority, which is really what all this questioning has been building to all along. The reason they're asking these questions, the reason they're confronting Jesus is in an attempt to, well, I guess the first question was even, by what authority do you do these things? And so they've been trying to understand the source of his authority and then invalidate him and his authority. Uh, and so this is kind of that last-ditch effort, throwing the best we got at Jesus in an effort to to bring him down. So if anybody's going to be able to go toe-to-toe with Jesus, it is this guy. This would be the guy, you would think. And so with that, I mean, the question is is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? I think this is, Jesus's response here is really important. And it's, I mean, as we've had this conversation, these conversations moving throughout the, the gospel of Matthew, we see his conversation about love kind of being interwoven, not always explicitly throughout every one of his teachings. Mm-hmm. So he he's constantly, we, we, we keep coming back to this conversation about the heart and how it's not so much about the following the rules. It's about your heart as you follow those rules. Sure. And so I feel like this, this really summarizes everything that Jesus's ministry has really been about and what its purpose has been throughout the the three years that he spent walking with the disciples, doing all these miracles, teaching the crowds. This is, this is kind of the thrust of it. And so by extension, we, as Jesus's followers, this is kind of our, this is our heartbeat. Mm. And, and this should be the thing that guides and shapes our motive in everything that we seek to do for the kingdom. And, and so he's, he's called to love. He's called us to love the Lord, our God, with all our, our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. Um, and so for me, like when I, when I read that, it's, he's calling us to do that, but he's getting ready to exemplify what that looks like for us. Now, you know, I mean, I know that, you know, they understand, they have been told of what was going to happen, but they haven't understood what's going to happen. But this this word that he uses, that, or that's used on multiple occasions, love, um, here and lo- love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. Um, for me, they are the attribute of God that he desires from us. He's showing love through... or getting ready to show love, but he's already showing love as he's teaching along the way, as he's answering these questions, as he's trying to, you know, as he has up to this point in and what we've seen through Matthew. And so um, I, I think there's an importance to the order too uh, in, in loving, you know. Um, we're never going to be able to love our neighbor if we don't understand what it means to love God with everything that we are. And, I mean, I think we can show an earthly affection toward people, but to truly love someone, we need that transformation that takes place 
that's only available through Jesus. And so as we continue to learn to love Jesus with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, we have this ability to love our neighbor as ourself. That should be the byproduct of loving God. So I think that, you know, everything that Jesus does, there's purpose with. And as we learn to love God with everything that we are, loving other people becomes increasingly easy. I, w- I would say even the flip side is true of that. I think we can't really know what it means to love people until we begin to understand what it means to love God. But at the same time, we can't truly love God if we're not loving his creation right. as well. So like, if we're not loving people, we shouldn't even be having a conversation about us loving God because we're looking right past image bearers of him, right? Like regardless of how marred or imperfect that image might be in the moment, we are still creating the image of God. And so if we're struggling to love others in a way that, that that's a, a pretty good indication that maybe we're also struggling to properly love him right. as he has called us to. Right. I, I mean, I, I it's would, like a two way street. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have assumed that people know that, but yes. Um, because we can, you know, which I think is an issue that like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were having, you know, you can have all the head knowledge you want and they right. have a plethora of head a knowledge, of but Jesus isn't trying to poke their head. He's like trying to penetrate their heart. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for people that have, you know, knowledge is a powerful thing, but knowledge and poor application is kind of pointless. I feel like, you know, we can know a lot of things, but I'm not willing to help others know what I know. And it's kind of a useless knowledge. It's just sitting here doing nothing. And so, you know, we can have all the head knowledge, but Jesus is trying to penetrate the heart because he understands that they know things as much as their physical limitations, you know, permit. I think when I think about um, loving the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, I, I think, yes, about me loving, but the more that I get to know God and the more that I learn about his character, the more that I can see his unconditional love. And I think that's something that we as a broken humanity have a, has a, we have a hard time doing that outside of knowing the love of God, um, I think, you know, we, without the love of God, I think there's an extent that you can love somebody, but to truly understand unconditional love, like the love of the father, then you can truly understand looking, like you said, Nick, looking through that lens, looking through the lens that, that God has put before you and and to see people as the image of God. Mm -hmm. It's like a full circle. Well, I guess as I'm reading this verse, my black and white mind is kind of like breaking it down and I'm wrestling with the questions of what does it mean to love God with my whole heart? What does it mean to love him with my whole soul as opposed to my whole heart? Like, why not just say with your whole heart, what does it mean? What does it add when I say, well, love him with your whole mind? And so I think I was just beginning to break that down and think about what are, what are the, 
what are the hallmark characteristics of each of those that come into play in an effort to help me understand better maybe the areas where I don't love God as well as I should. So I guess as I, as I read loving God with, with my whole heart, I think about like, this is my passions and my desires. Um, and so these are the things that, that I guess, I don't know, propel me or motivate me to, to something. And so loving God with all my passion, wanting to serve him it, like as my, my, my primary desire. And maybe that's the one I think that probably is easiest for me to think of when I think about loving God that way. Um, the next one's soul, I think for me is a little bit trickier, but when I think about my soul, um, the things that are, the soul is eternal. So the things that are, that, that don't fade. So I don't know, like your beliefs or your values. What does it look like for me to love God with, with the values that I hold, the morals that I hold, or the wor- essentially the worldview that I hold? And then I guess for mind, as I was wrestling with that, I mean, these are my thoughts. What does it look like for me? And I think maybe this for me might be the most challenging one because I tend to think very logical and I, I don't, I, I don't behave very impulsively. Um, everything for me needs to be calculated and, and God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work in my calculations. And so what does it look like for me to love God with my mind? And I think for me, I, I feel him stretching me to get beyond, get beyond what's calculable, get beyond what's logical or reasonable and to surrender my every thought to him, especially those where I'm trying to plan and orchestrate and kind of take over part of his role in my life that he's called me to to submit or to give up to him. As you say that, it makes me wonder if like Jesus using that specific reference because of he knows the audience. Like we know Jesus does things intentionally. And so they seem to be more logically based because the scripture, like the law is very black and white. And so for them, they're just taking it at like face value. Like this is what the law says. So this is what I'm supposed to do. And it doesn't allow, like they don't have to really think about it or put any heart, like not, not to say that their heart's not in it, but like, it's like, this is what I like. They've become so regimented and Jesus is trying to get beyond all of that, all of the black and white, because as I said, he's trying to penetrate their heart and their practices that they've been so accustomed to carrying out for generation upon generation of this is the way it's always been. And this is the way, like for them, this is the way it's always going to be unless the guy who wrote the law, like is able to to help them see beyond what they've seen up to this point. So, you know, I, I, Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. And as you said that, it just, you know, it makes sense to me why he would do that because they think very black and white. Well, and I think even, even with that, like, I agree with what you said in the sense of, um, like him knowing his audience, like the, the hymns, 
saying the the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. Like this is a this is a callback to the Shema, and so this is Deuteronomy six four and five, and this is something that was the common practice of a good Jew would be to recite this every morning. So this, for Jesus to answer this as, you know, what is the most important, what is the greatest commandment for him to answer with this? Like, you can't really argue that when you don't, you don't recite the rest of the laws every morning when you wake up, but when you wake up, you recite this one because this is important to us. And so Jesus, knowing his audience, calls this out. It's a slight change, right? Because he says mind instead of strength. Because Deuteronomy says, with all your strength. Matthew, Jesus's response is, with all your mind. And I think that there is this, this piece that he brings in, right? Saying, like, now your mind's thinking about the Shema. Good. You guys are super analytical. You guys have been trying to reason your, like reason away through the dismissal of my authority. <laughs> and so I need to call you guys out to this and, and and help you realize like, you know what the most important law is. I know what the most important law is. Now let's start like implementing that in the way that we're handling and treating each other and working with each other. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think Jesus did know his audience and he, I mean, he takes it further, right? Like he, he, references Deuteronomy and then he goes to Leviticus when he says and love your neighbor as yourself and you know that's out of Leviticus chapter 19 and also in Leviticus chapter 19 uh, God says be holy as I am holy like he calls Israel to be holy as he is holy and in explaining that and working that out and what it means to be holy as God is holy you eventually get to this statement of loving your neighbor as yourself, caring for your brother, caring for the alien. Like you love everybody and care for them. That's what it looks like to be holy as God is holy. And so like Jesus has taken them from something that they would recognize pretty easily as the most important commandment and connected it using this word love, right? Because it's the same word love to an additional commandment that he is saying, and the second is like it, is equally important, is, is similar. And that is like this, this love that's lived out in this life. So you have this like vertical love, you have this horizontal love all being addressed. And Jesus is saying they are equally important. And so he's, he's calling them to action. And I guess even beyond calling them to action, I, I'm looking down at my Bible and I, you know, I'm reading verse 40. It says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And when I read that earlier, as I was kind of reading through this passage and, and studying it and, and preparing for this conversation, a thought hit me. I have always seen it as what I just said, a call to action, like this is the life that Jesus has called us to is a life of loving God and loving others and loving others as we love God and, and God as we love others like this, you know, interwoven reciprocating love. But as I read all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, um, a new thought came into my mind that not only is this a, a call to action, but it's a call to look at 
all the law and the prophets, which for him to make that statement, this is all of scripture in that day. It's a call for them to look at all of the other laws through the lens of love. So you can't have a conversation on any of the Levitical laws, however numerous they are, without looking at them through this lens of loving God and loving others. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, and in both commands, love is central. If in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God, so Jesus is the Word from the very beginning, the attribute from the very beginning that reigns supreme is is love. God is love, and, and you, you you can find that in, what was it, First John? First John, yeah. And so, I, I don't know, maybe that's, a, you know, for me, as it ends, like he ends it with like this emphatic, for me, this emphatic statement that everything's been said up to this point in Scripture defines him as love, and that's our call. That's, that's what he's calling us to as far as loving him but also this call to action not only in loving him and loving our neighbor and viewing everything that's been written up to this point through the lens of love. And so, I don't know, for me, I I think he emphatically ends it. that He is love, even for the people that think they have all the answers. Natasha, I'm, I'm still thinking about what you said when you were talking about breaking down the heart and the soul and the mind and, you know, I, the, the desire I think is something that really stuck to me in every desire that I'm giving that to God. But I also think maybe this could apply to the church and it could be a temperature gauge. Is this activity that we are doing, is it honoring God and is it showing love to people? Is it, are we loving our neighbor as ourself through this. And I I think we can take, you know, really everything that we do, um, whether honestly, whether it's a ministry or outside of the outside of ministry and look at that and say, okay, this thing that I'm doing, is it showing, is it honoring and showing love to God? And is it showing love to my neighbor? And I think that could help us. And I think that's part of that hanging the whole law in the prophets, I think. The lens. Yeah, continuously thinking, is what I'm doing meeting these two commandments? It would be an easy way to evaluate the different activities that, or, or I mean, I say activities, I'm not just meaning like events or anything, just activities as in the Life gamut activities, activi- yeah. of activity, activities that could be happening. But to to hold all those up against the litmus test of, does this contain love for God and love for others? Not or, but love for God and love for others. And if the answer is no to one or both of those, perhaps it's something that should not be a part of what's going on or it needs to change. I well, think I think the motive thing is a big deal. Like you said, it, it may just be that it needs to be tweaked or changed. Well, and I think you need to think about not just so... I'm particularly talking about ministry right now, but not just the people that that ministry thing is serving, but also other people. You know, are you doing something that, you know, you're, you know, you have a group that meets. Um, are you guys, are those people that meet, are they inviting people? 
are they, you know, sharing that love or expanding that out or, you know, say that, um, you know, Derek and I, we had, um, this is outside of ministry. If we just had dinner at our house and we, um, invited our neighbors, but we did not invite one neighbor. Is that, yes, we are showing love to our neighbors that we invited, but are we showing love to the neighbor that we did not? And I think we, that's sometimes hard. Um, but I think that's kind of the challenge that Jesus is putting forth, like not just loving the easy ones, but loving all of our neighbors. Well, I mean, I feel like his example is perfect. Like he's going to the people that are trying to trap him and extending grace and mercy when it would be easy just to be like, no, just like they, they already think what they think and already know that they're out to kill me. So like, you know, why waste my time? Right. But yeah, in, in spite of that, like he essentially like charges on knowing like he has a purpose and despite how hard it physically may be, like he, he doesn't just like check out because, well, you know, they're not listening to me, you know, he, he presses on, which, um, maybe that's something we need to ask too. Like, are we giving up too easily because it's too hard? Like Jesus didn't give up in the midst of all this opposition when he knew the two objectives, love the father and honor the father and love the people that God's given him to serve. And so he pressed on and, you know, maybe that's something we, we can ask ourselves, are we pressing on even when it's hard? Well, I'm going to expose us for a moment. That's okay. <laughs> um, when I was thinking about this, I, I'm going to, I'm going to believe that, that God put this thought in my mind. Um, we live in a very nice neighborhood. Um, we, within the last few months, we got, um, exterior lights, permanent lights put on our house. We have, we've really enjoyed having them. Um, but we got a, what's that called? A a notice of like violation essentially. Yeah. So we got that violation for, you know, having our lights on and what the issue was we didn't Get fill approval. out approval yet, but we, we could take care of that. But before we actually knew kind of the reason why we assumed that we had somebody in our neighborhood that just didn't like that and that they um, just were going to tattle on us, you know, and our response has been, was not, would not measure up here. Our response, I mean, I don't know me personally, I was like, well, I'm just going to shine them brighter. You know, and instead of thinking, you know, there's, and I, you know, I said that to myself, I'm probably told Derek and maybe a couple of friends, but when it comes down to it, even the words that I said was not honoring God or my neighbor. Right. Well, I mean, even a few days ago, the four of us were having a conversation and I had to come back a few days ago and say, you know what? I was wrong because I was, because my heart was not in the right place. How different would this story of Jesus's life read, potentially, if the Pharisees had heard, actually heard what Jesus was saying here about love, about love being the lens through which they see everything or or evaluate everything? 
Like they may have still been questioning him. They may have still been leery of him potentially being a false prophet or something like that. But how would it change the way that they moved forward with him or encountered him or interacted with him if they came from a position of love rather than a position of really the absence of love? Like they were threatened. They were, they had animosity towards him and it was animosity that led to him being crucified. It wasn't love, right? From their perspective. It was love from Jesus's perspective that led to his crucifixion, but just, and then play that out into our lives. Like how often do we, as a result of our lack of loving God perfectly or loving others perfectly lead to death in some way or another in somebody's life? I feel like we would behave more like little children Hmm. if we, you know, if that almost sounds (laughs) biblical, (laughs) if we, you know, truly took these commandments and loved God with all our heart, soul and mind and loved our neighbor as ourself, that we would resemble little children more than we would our current position. So as we move on from this conversation on love being the lens through which we understand the law and the um, action that we are called to in life, we we step into this conversation that really brings um, the larger conversation to a head in a sense. as a callback, this this all this line of questioning all began with the the simple question of by what authority are you doing what you are doing, and and Jesus answers their question in a sense by asking one of his own this question of who do you think um, or what do you think about the Messiah, whose son is he? And the Pharisees have a response, a a simple response, the son of David. Um, And this is consistent with the, the Davidic covenant that has been made, that was made with David, that God made with David, that the Messiah would come out of his line Uh, by them answering the son of David, by no means did they mean, you know, like his immediate son, but somewhere in his lineage would be uh, the Messiah. Uh, And they knew this from, the covenant made, they also knew this from the the prophecies that, that they have studied. Um, and so Jesus, knowing, again, knowing his audience, knowing where they are, knowing what they're understanding when they say the son of David, he asks a simple question again, knowing that they will know what he is referencing. Uh, and he says, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? And and he references Psalm 110 here, which Psalm 110 uh, is a psalm of David. It's also a psalm that was used at the coronation ceremony for the king. And so it was like this, this installation psalm for kings. Um, and so in, in so using this particular psalm, Jesus begins to expose a potential hole in the thinking of the Pharisees. Because for them to say that the Messiah is 
going to be the son of David, Jesus's question is kind of throws you off balance when he says, well, why would David call his son Lord? And there's not really any, any response here. I mean, verse 46 says that no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Because in Jesus asking these two particular questions, not only does he establish the Messiah as one that is, falls in line with you know the descendants of David, so son of man conversation, he establishes that the Messiah is somehow something more, something more than just the son of man. And with this Lord word used, he actually establishes the Messiah as the son of God. And them not asking any more questions is probably to protect themselves because he's already kind of exposed it, and any more questions would probably only further expose how limited their their knowledge truly is mm-hmm. of, of who the Messiah is and his, the authority that he's been given. I just wonder if I, I, if I fall in a similar situation as, as the Pharisees did here when Jesus asks a question and I give a response— and I don't like his answer. Like then he comes back with a kind of a rebuttal, or and I don't like it. Do I do the same thing where I just don't like? I just go away. No more questions. Like I'm afraid to hear what he might say. Um, and maybe that kind of sounds crazy, but I, I don't think they wanted to hear any more about how he thought they were wrong. And how how often can we justify things in our own lives? We ask God for something. He gives us a clear answer, and we don't like it, so now we're just justifying, well, that must not have been God. Like, um, I mean, I know I've done that, and I'm sure I'm not alone that it's easy to justify things, but, you know, I think God's pretty—he's pretty clear if we're willing to listen. Like, And I think he was very clear here. They just didn't want to listen. And how often are we the same— you know, God's clear in what he's saying. Jesus is clear in what he's saying. He hasn't strayed from what he said. He's been consistent in what he said. But in every way that he's answered a question that they've had, they haven't liked his response. And now, as he like fully exposes their limited understanding, when he fully exposes my limited understanding, do I walk away the same way that the Pharisees did? Do I walk away and say, you know what? I'm done. I'm not asking that question again because I'm not getting the answer that I want. But the truth is when we look at this and we see what he is exposing, he is exposing so much more, such a better idea of who the Messiah is. You know, not just are you is the Messiah the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And that has to be better than just the son of David. And Derek, when I think about what you were saying, you know, yes, sometimes God, you know, points things out to me and I don't like it, but almost every single time there is a better thing. There is a better 
it either helps me to be better, helps me to grow in one way or another, where I like, wh- whether I like it or not, but the outcome is still positive. But he's trying to fight against preconceived notions and customs of what we've grown up thinking and understanding about this Messiah that's going to come, like charging in on a horse to save us. Like he's our conquering king, our our king that's going to go into battle with us. And it's just another example of how preconceived notions often fall short of what the intended purpose is, what God's intended purpose is. That knowledge isn't enough. Like knowing about what the law, knowing the law isn't enough. The law was meant to expose, and Jesus is coming to expose. Really, it's it's kind of ironic. I really hadn't thought about it, but Jesus is coming to expose essentially what the law was given to expose, and they just, they're, they're not seeing it. And so... Well, is it that they're, is it that they're not seeing it, or is it that it's so uncomfortable, they don't want to see it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably a fair question. Because <laughs> I mean, like, so, verse forty six, they couldn't have a reply. Nobody dared to ask a question again. Verse forty, that that exchange about the the love passage doesn't have any kind of response. Um, the last one on marriage and the resurrection statement says that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. Like essentially all of these questions that people have been asking that Jesus has exposed the misunderstanding, the misconceptions that exist, they just go silent because they are uncomfortable. They are uncomfortable when met with the truth, Jesus, that is inconsistent with their, beliefs that they have held for so long and are you saying what I've done for decades is wrong that's what that's what they're struggling with and that's hard and I think that brings us back to a similar conversation that we had last week about like this is why it's so important for us to always stand before Christ with open hands, with our understandings and our beliefs and our action, like l- just everything. <laughs> like that's what it looks like to live a life of stewardship, a well-stewarded life, like even stewarding our spirituality. That's well, what it looks like to love God that's with what our it looks heart, like to love God, our soul and our mind. Holding all of that before him. But we... We, like as a society, we struggle with that because we have those presuppositions or those, you know, preconceived notions or we've grown up in this, like, you know, this is the way it was. This is the way my grandparents did it and my parents did it and this is the way I'm going to do it and my kids are going to do it. And, like, we, when we do that, we don't allow God to, like, have his rightful place because then it's 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 my, it's it's essentially my religion. It's not what, like, it's not... It's not a, it's not the truth. It's my truth. Mm-hmm. It's a distorted truth when we cling so tightly to the past. So I think the question that we could ask is 
when, when we have things that are exposed, what is our response? Is our response to accept and to trust what he is saying? Or is our response to be angry and to not listen and to go the path that the Pharisees go down? Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about The Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.